What, have you ever known someone that's just been so about something that it just consumed everything? I mean, it was everywhere, everywhere you turned. So when I was a, when I was a child, maybe about six or seven, eight years old, Got to go for the first time to Disney World. You know, we're in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. We take the train there. You know, this is going back to the 70s. So we take the train there, and we get to my grandmother's friend's place, and they lived on an orange farm about an hour north of Walt Disney World. They were also itinerantly wealthy and traveled the world like crazy. And so the thing that they did was they loved to decorate their house with all of the artifacts and things from where they traveled, and it was everywhere. Matter of fact, they would take National Geographic maps and use it as wallpaper in different parts of their house and then put little you know, dots where they had been. But as a child, it was both wonderful and very scary because their places of most interest were Asia and Africa. And they didn't like to, you know, get these beautiful artifacts or beautiful artwork. They loved really scary masks. So as a child, I was like, well, this is great until it was nighttime. Because you would go in their kitchen and there's masks. And you would go around their living room and there's masks. And you would be in the bathroom and there is a huge mask looking at you. Well, then they had a guest home, and I was like, they had a guest quarters, and I was like, this is going to be great. I'm going to go out, I'm going to get away from these masks. And as I lie in this room, which is only large enough for a single bed and a chest of drawers over here, there are masks all around the room, and I could not escape from them no matter what. And I was sure that I would wake up in the middle of the night, and there would be actually a figure behind the mask, and then he would eat me. So... But no matter where you went in their house, it was everywhere. And I was kind of like, can we not, can we get away from this at all? What Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, I'm not asking for followers. I'm trying to tell you about what a disciple of mine would look like. And if you are all about me, what would it look like for me, for the passion for the Lord to be evident everywhere you looked in my life? Everywhere you looked, no matter what room you went in into my life or what room you went into my heart, evidence of Christ would be there. Devotion to Christ would be there. And that is especially true when you come into the part of our lives where we deal with money. And so if we lived out the gospel, what would it look like in every part of our life, especially the part of money? So do you realize, we'll give you a little bit of, I'll give you a little bit of perspective here. Jesus spoke more about money and material wealth than heaven and hell combined. Did you realize that 11 out of 39 parables in the Bible, 11 of 39 of his parables are about money? prayer. You think to yourself, somebody asks you, does the Bible talk a lot about prayer? And you go all the time, 500 verses about prayer. However, the Bible has 2000 verses about money. So we got to, we got to kind of grasp that it's something that we need to talk about, but I want to give you the qualifier for that. So I was th- I was trying to think how long I had been in ministry and this is going back. I'm not going back all the way to where I was the area director of young life. We'll, we'll call, we'll call that training, training days. But when I began so for 22 years, I've been, in, I've been in full-time ministry for 22 years. In 22 years, I have people, have people come and drag their child by their ear into my office. In 22 years, I've had people about get into fistfights in my office about things in their marriage. In 22 years, I've heard about all kinds of issues. In 22 years, I've cried with people. I've celebrated with people. In 22 years, I have never, ever, not once, not even a suggestion, ever had someone walk Never, not once, never. And yet Jesus talks about it all the time and there's 2,000 verses in the Bible about it. So what does that tell me? 
Greed might be something that we all struggle with and nobody wants to admit it. Or everybody wants to rationalize it. Or everybody's got a reason why it's okay. But let's talk about all of these things. And so Jesus would say, it's not about you possessing wealth. Because some of the people in the Bible that are, are most godly tend to be wealthy. It's not about you possessing wealth. It's about, does the wealth possess you? Are you possessed my money by money? And is the gospel, is Christ, is the Lord in every aspect of your life, especially how you use money, not how it uses you? So when we look at verse 19, if you want to go back, I'll give you a verse by verse for this. So we go to verse by verse, and I want to give you, I want to give you pictures, and I want to give you illustrations that hopefully will engage your brain to begin to think more actively. So the first one, in verse 19, verse 19, pay attention to these words where he says, do not store up. So the reason why he uses store up is Jesus is a masterful engager, and he wants to engage you in a physical realm so you'll see that the physical then opens up to this true life, which is where the spiritual is. So he begins to talk about this. And so when you, when you are storing up, you realize that storing up is a planning, a purposeful, and a willful Earth, willful, earthly focus in how you live. Not a heaven-wise focus, not, not a heaven word or a God-centered, but an earthly focus. And it's not just, it didn't just happen, it was an accident. You are actively doing, I don't know if any of you guys grew up with a big garden like we did, but if your grandmothers or mothers ever canned stuff, it is an incredible process. And it, I didn't realize how big it was until I grew up in this household. And you can't accidentally can things. Like I've never walked into, I don't know where these came from. Oh, things in and people are dying because of the fumes and people are dying because they ate zucchini because that's terrible stuff. But it is, it is this planned out purposeful. So he's trying to engage you. He's saying this, this whole idea of storing up earthly treasures, it's not something that's accidentally, you do it, you do it, you plan your life around it. And then what does he call this? He says, earthly treasure. So he's, again, engaging you in a visual, and something that is your treasure is something that eerity. You know, men, we, we, we gravitate towards this because at about 12 years old, we began to notice vehicles, or beforehand. And, and then about 15, we were saying, if I could only get that... For me, it was the Jeep Renegade. If I could only get the Jeep Renegade, and then my parents said, no, you not only will not own a car, you will have the Dodge Aries station wagon to borrow. But if I could only have that, I would have significance. Or, and so the treasure is what either gives you significance or security. And so then he proceeds to ask this next question. The question's implied where things can destroy it. And so Jesus is saying, is your truest treasure... Is it devourable or is it solid? Is your truest treasure transient and stealable or takeable or is it anchored? This is why I love Hebrews 6, 9, for we have this hope that is the difference between if you were thinking about it, putting the crown jewel underneath a piece of glass out here in the middle of town and we would have to guard it all the time and be worried that someone was going to come take it. Who's the last person you saw guarding the sun? Right? It's, it's ludicrous. You don't have to guard the sun. You can't take it. And that's what he's talking about. He said, where is your treasure? So in verse 20, he's going to give you this contrast. 
He's going to give you the contrast and he's going to say, but instead, rather, live out the nature is already laid up in heaven. And we who are on the other side of the cross and resurrection understand that our treasure has been laid up in heaven by what Christ has done for us. Paul, of course, I guess, again, again, talks about this in Galatians chapter 4, if you'd like to do this. But we understand that this living out, this storing up for ourselves treasures, do you know what that looks like? It looks like obedience, Children who understand that they have an incredible inheritance don't go out and rob people. They live like that. They live, but this coming to them is going to come to them. And so we live with the first fruits of the Holy Spirit in our life right now, knowing that we're not controlled by our sinful earthly desires to go and do this and get that, or we have to have this, or we need this for significance or that for security. We don't do that. We know that our treasure is already laid up in heaven, and we live that laying up treasures by obeying God, by acting like children of God. And so in verse 21, verse 21 is simply a question of who has your loyalty? Who has your loyalty? Your body might be here, but where is your heart and where is your mind? Is this not the essence of infidelity? Is what he's talking about not absolutely the essence of infidelity? Infidelity is my body might be with you, but my mind and heart are with someone else. And occasionally I will take my body with where my mind and heart are and I will give my body to them too. And so he's saying, where is your loyalty lie? Where does your loyalty? This seems like a hard right turn, but in reality, he's given you the whole analogy of, he's given you the whole illustration of where I opened with saying that for 22 years, I've never had someone walk into my office and tell me that they struggle with greed or struggle with material possessions, owning them. Never had it, never. And he's talking to you about this idea of you have it, but might not see it, or you have it and you can't see it. And so he says about this eye, he says, Either it enables the body to truly see, or it enables the body to find the way. So you think about this. When you have correct vision, when you can see, when there's plenty of light, your eye opens up the way for you to truly see what really is and for you to find the way. We talk about this in, in, if you read, you know, stories like me with kids stuck in caves and they're trying to find a way out and all of a sudden there's light and they begin to follow that light. The eye is what lets that light in. So he talks about what a true eye, what a good eye really does. But then in verse 23, he then to full blindedness, especially when it comes to material things, happens. He says also then in verse 23, it is possible to be surrounded by true, pure, and guiding light and be blind. That's, that's what being blind is, right? You're surrounded by guiding light, but you can't see it. Your eye has shut it out. Well, this is a willful blinding. This is not a physical blinding. This is a willful, spiritual blinding. It is possible to be surrounded by true willful blindness, this blindness of choice. It's either a choosing to deny God and do what you want or believing lies about God and becoming blinded. And then he says, and if the light then that you think is light really leads to death, how blind are you? And I think about light that leads to death, and I think about in Proverbs, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end of it leads unto death. What does false light look like in our world? False light looks like the anger down in the darkest recesses of the bottom of the ocean. There are these incredibly scary, scary, scary fish with massive mouths, and they have this little thing that dangles over their mouth in the dark, and it lights up with a bioluminescent glow. And fish see the light. They don't see the anglerfish, but they see the light. And right after you're underneath what you think is the light, the big giant anglerfish mouth opens up and kills you. If you don't believe me, watch Finding Dory. I mean, Finding Nemo. Sorry, Dory Heaven's story. But this worshiping 
and being possessed by material things. And then in verse 24, verse 24, this serve two masters, what he is saying, it literally means to be a slave of. And so he says very clearly in this text, and this is what is implied, it says clearly, you are going to serve one or the other, but you will love one and hate one. And you know why that is? It's because you can have two employers, but you can't have two owners. You can have two employers, but you cannot have two owners. Giver of the gifts, or do you love simply the gift itself? Because devotion to God is what is at stake here. My sister Amy is going to come and she's going to give you the application and tie this all together. By the way, that was the last announcement that I forgot to give you. Bob's not here today. I've been thinking about a few other things. Um, It's a very 21st century American thing to hear what he just said. Um, I kind of go like, well, I might have a boss, but nobody owns me. I'm not a slave to anybody. And that's exactly the word that Jesus is using here. He's saying you're going to be a slave to something. So the options that he sets up are clearly either God or, in some of your translations, it may say mammon. So uh, mammon, for those of you who don't speak Aramaic, um, is an old... That was a joke. That's fine. Um, like the money that people would give to a banker to put in a trust for them. Because most people in the ancient world didn't have huge sums of money. They would split their wealth between uh, like cloth and uh, storehouses full of grain and then a little bit of money. So if they had more than just a little bit of money, they'd give it to a banker. The banker would put it in holding for it, and mammon had to do with that money that you put away so you didn't have huge sums of wealth. Uh, But over time, it came to be not the thing that you gave to somebody else or entrusted to somebody else, but the thing in which you put from uh, verse 19 through 24. And he paints what I think is a pretty elaborate picture uh, that gives us two really clear options. Uh, and, And he sets up a decision point, which is a thing that Jesus often does. When he gets done, we can see that, that the first option is to set our hearts on perishable things, uh, things of earth, things that are going to cloud our judgment and lead us to look at the world with a really greedy and jealous outlook and things that will cause us to be slaves of money and materialism. But conversely, we're going to be uh, this life orientation towards a clear and generous view of the world uh, that leads us into being a single-minded servant of God. So a number of years ago, um, I heard a story about Warren Buffett that stuck with me for a really long time. And now, before I tell you the story, I do want to tell you the obvious thing, which is that Warren Buffett is not Jesus. Not even close. He's done some really good things in business. He's given some great donations to charity, and I respect both of those things. But he's also made a lot of personal and professional. Be like Buffett. I just want you to hear one story. So as the story goes, Buffett is talking to his pilot one day, and he's talking about the pilot's goals. And he, uh, he asked the pilot, you know, what do you really want? What are your top goals in life? Because, you know, I want you to go out and achieve them. So he sends the pilot off with the, with the job of making a list of his top 25 goals. And the pilot comes back, and he's got 25, and they're all meaningful and important goals to him. And Buffett looks over the list, and he says, that's, that's good. Now circle your top. He looks at him again. He decides what are his top five goals. He circles them, and he brings it back to Warren Buffett. And Warren Buffett says, that's great. Those five that you circled, that's your to-do list. And the guy's like, okay, okay, that's my to-do list. I can do that. So then Buffett asks him a harder question. He says, what about items six through 25? What are you going to do with everything else? Um, And the pilot thinks about it, and he says, well, I guess those are the things that I'm going to work on, like, as I have time and as I see that I'm really making progress towards my top five goals. And Buffett looks at him and he says, no, absolutely, you don't do that under any circumstance. Six through 25 is your not-to-do list. 
He said, you don't ever give any of your focus to those things, not a moment of time, not an ounce of energy, until you've got those top five done. So why does Buffett tell the pilot, don't dare touch numbers six through 25? Well, I think it's because in just this one case, he knows the exact same principle that Jesus knows, which is that we great things, that we can kind of shift our focus to the things that, that we might care about, and in the process, we lose focus on the things that absolutely give us life. Items 6 through 25 on Buffett's list, they're kind of like the money in Jesus' story. They might be good, they might be useful, they might even be important, but when they become a priority, they're the worst kind of dangerous because they're going to pull our attention away from our ultimate goal and divide our loyalty. Jeopardy. In the same way, by going after treasure on earth and seeking for it, we miss out on treasure in heaven. So this question of what is this treasure in heaven has come up a lot this week as our groups have studied it. Um, And Pastor Paul started to answer this question. Um, But according to the picture that Jesus paints and what I see Jesus doing here, the treasure in heaven is that one thing that we need to orient our lives around. The the one thing that defines how we see the world. It's, It's asking the question of what the treasure in heaven is. For me, it's a question of who the treasure in heaven is. It's abundantly clear to me after spending a week studying this passage that our treasure in heaven is Jesus, who is sitting at the right hand of God, who is interceding on the Father's, uh, at the Father's throne, who's prepared a place for us with him, and who has already bought and redeemed us with his blood. So that is the truth that Christians orient our lives around. That's the truth that the God we serve and that we're loyal to above all else. So treasure in heaven is God, but like Pastor Paul said, treasure on earth is God's creation. The problem is that we live on earth and we're surrounded by earthly things and we can see them and hear them and taste them and touch them and smell them and we know God's creation and it is really easy to get attached to it. And I think that's why Jesus spends so much time talking about it because he knows that's where the temptation is going to be get about the creator. So the question to ask ourselves is, are we more passionate about creation or about the one who created it? Or if you want to change the metaphor a little bit, are we more enthralled by the gifts we've been given or by the giver? Whatever those things are that we have and love, be they money or family or home or health or community or whatever, they're things we didn't create. So at this point, I'm, I'm sure a few of you are getting a little t- exercise, and I eat well, and I don't smoke, and I take great care of myself, and I invest in the relationships I have. Good. That's, that's excellent. You've been a good steward. But you didn't decide what family you'd be born into or what genes you would have or that when you opened your eyes this morning, your heart would be beating. You might take good care of things that God has given to you, and that's admirable and commendable and exactly what you should be doing with them. But you didn't do anything to create them. Too often and too easily, we look at the things God has entrusted to us, and we fail to see them as gifts that we've been allowed to steward. Rather, we see them as objects that become a God for us. And the Bible has a word for that. It's idolatry. So Jesus' warning here in Matthew 6 is ultimately and fundamentally against idolatry. What Jesus is saying is that anytime you choose creation over the creator, the gift over the giver, It's idolatry. In other places in the Bible, Jesus totally, definitely tells people, sell everything, give everything you have, and go. But here, in this passage, the call isn't to get rid of things. 
It's to have a radical, countercultural dependence on God rather than on ourselves. He's asking us to trust that God can and will care for us better than we could ever care for ourselves. These look like material comfort or luxury. Instead, what he's asking us to do is orient our lives around a treasure in heaven. And what happens when we set our hearts on Jesus is that we learn to see the world as Jesus sees it. Our, our eye, our vision out into the world is clear and generous, and we start to see the possessions we've been given, however many or however great they are, as God's resources to steward and not our goods to be hoarded up. Burdens, but as opportunities to share compassion and care and generosity. And we look for chances to build God's kingdom with our time and our talents and, yes, even our money. And we do all this not because we're hoping for a crown of jewels or accolades or for, you know, like the seat of honor at the heavenly banquet. We do it because our eyes are fixed on Jesus, who is our one true treasure. And we know that anything else that we might have right now is just a temporary good. Pastor Paul said, it can be destroyed, it can be stolen, it can disappear. We set our eyes on Jesus and our treasure in heaven because our ultimate desire is to serve God. And we know that we're a slave to something, and being a slave to anything less than God is just not acceptable. Having a treasure in heaven changes absolutely everything. It changes our priorities, our heart, our view of the world, how we serve. And there's an all is no treasure in this world that is greater, no person or thing that is more worthy of worship than the treasure that we already have in heaven. And so I love that on this particular Sunday, we have this passage and we also have a celebration of communion. So as we, as we come to this table, um, we're celebrating our treasure in heaven and we're remembering his sacrifice and we're refocusing our eyes and our hearts on that treasure, which is Jesus.